so I've always been outside from the gaming sector, so I've been able to observe it and the way it evolved from the outside. There is sometimes even a specific chapter on the compliance culture. So the priorities of the customer are very different when it comes to uh, what they seek when dealing with smaller banks and smaller jurisdictions mm-hmm. meant that they would need a regiment of compliance officers. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Sigma podcast where today we'll be meeting with Manfred Galdes. Hi Good Manfred. Afternoon. Manfred is, I'd say, an old friend now. (laughs) (laughs) A colleague. um, With no uh, emphasis on the word old, if you don't mind. No, no, (laughs) always. But um, Manfred also has uh, a very interesting um, employment history, having ran the FIAU in Malta for a period of time, hence a strong background in anti-money laundering. And now he is the managing partner of ARQ, a consultancy company, which also deals on on a money laundering, anti-money laundering front, and the partner at a law firm called FFF. Manfred, thank you for accepting our invite. Thank you for the invitation. It's a real pleasure to be here. Manfred, I know you've, you, you dealt, touched with the gaming sector the first time when you were in charge of the FIAU. Um, just give us a bit of a brief background how you got involved in the gaming sector without the need of touching what happened when you were at the FIE. So, my background is compliance. So Mm -hmm. as a lawyer, I've always practiced in the area of compliance, financial services initially as a lawyer within the regulator, the financial services regulator in Malta. And then Eventually, after after a couple of other positions, I took on the role of director of the FIU, and that is before gaming companies started to be regulated the way they are from an AML point of view. Okay. Um, so when was that exactly, if you don't mind me asking? So I left the FIU in July 2016. Okay. And from 1st January 2018, gaming companies became subject persons in terms of law. Okay. But already at the time they had certain ob- AML obligations uh-huh. under the MGA rules. But they became a bit heavier after the first. Much judgment. heavier after first. Would, w- if, if we may, just for the benefit of, of the viewers, what were those major changes? Becoming a subject person, what would that mean for an operator? Well, from 1st January 2018, so all the rules that applied previously to banks, financial institutions, investment firms, mm-hmm. eventually even estate agents, land-based casinos, etc., came in lock, stock and barrel with the 40U directive to apply to the entire gaming sector. So it now was now not just land-based casinos, but anybody operating within the gaming sector that had to, intru- to, had to implement customer due diligence, reporting obligations, record keeping, etc. The, the works. But we're talking there about operators, not suppliers, given that multi Operators, yes. In Malta, it's just B2C. It's B2C which gets... In the UK, you have even B2B suppliers that have AML obligations. AML obligations. In Malta, it's been restricted to B2C, okay. which is allowed within the ambit of the of, of the fourth directive four and subsequently fifth directive okay so you have from a compliance perspective and now you're with AR, arq you offer consultancy services in this field but you've seen the gaming sector change yes I presume. <laughs> from your perspective how have you seen this change um 
I know there's a compliance point of view, but even if you feel comfortable talking from a product point of view or any, any other perspective that you see it from. Like everything else, there's always an evolution. Okay, so I've always been outside from the gaming sector, so I've been able to observe it and the way it evolved from the outside, not being involved with any gaming company directly at any stage. So as a regulator initially, and today for the past seven years, I've been advising a number of gaming companies mm-hmm. when it comes to their compliance obligations. I've, I've seen a, a level of maturity coming into the sector. So initially I would say there was uh, little attention being given to compliance because there was a light touch regulation. I'm not speaking about Maltown, I'm speaking um, about the sector uh, internationally. Um, There was um, uh, an approach, uh, not too much attention to consumer rights, at least initially. So it was a sector at its infancy. It's where other sectors were, um, if you take financial services sector, where they were 20 years ago, right, in terms of consumer rights, in terms of compliance, in terms of regulation, etc. Within a short period of time, there has had to be, because of international pressure, because of pressure from various parliaments, because of European Union pressure, there has had to be a tightening there had to be a tightening Mm -hmm. of regulation. There had to be, I think, a change in mindset, a change in culture. Mm -hmm. Um, Governance started to creep in, the importance of good governance, um, and I think that is an important stage that a lot of gaming companies are in at the moment. A number of them became publicly listed companies, so the, 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 the rules that applied to them were much more cumbersome. Um, uh, you, you, you just use the words change in mindset, change in culture and sometimes we also hear about the need of a compliance culture whoever reads the, 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 the settlement agreements which the UKGC for mm-hmm. example reaches with, with some license holders some of its license holders in view of infractions there is always there is sometimes even a specific chapter on the compliance culture so what do you mean exactly by by a change in mindset a change in culture okay so in essence one can comply with the law one can choose to follow regulation mm-hmm. because the regulator expects you to do so because there are a number of boxes that need to be ticked um, and if you don't do so you risk a fine you risk losing your license now compliance culture goes beyond that a compliance culture means that you comply because you want to comply, because there's a benefit in complying. There's a benefit in being compliant with the laws and in giving your customer a service within the ambit of the law. And there's a benefit in um, uh, ensuring and telling the world out there that you respect your customer's rights and you do it because you really believe in that. Now, that happens with maturity, right? You don't wake up one fine morning and say, I want my business to thrive, um, but it will only thrive because I will um, abide by the law strictly. This happens, this grows upon a sector (coughs) over over a period of time. I think people become aware as time goes by. I've, in my experience, I've seen (laughs) statements ranging from 
we need to be fully compliant, which is someone woke up on the wrong side of their of their bed and decided one morning to do it that way. Two, in all honesty, it's cheaper for me to get fined than to lose the business. So maybe over there the key word, Manfred, is balance. How so I understand the need of a compliance culture, but I also understand the need for commercial companies to make a bottom line which makes sense. So how do you marry the need of a compliance culture with bottom line? How do you find that balance, Manfred? There's, there's never, nobody operates in a vacuum, right? You operate within a regulatory environment, you operate within a series of regulatory environments, if you take the gaming world. Gaming companies have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten licenses. Even twenty licenses nowadays. They're operating in different jurisdictions, and one jurisdiction varies from the other. Insofar as there is a level playing field, one can compete even on the basis of the level of compliance. So you don't compete only on the basis of the best products. You don't only compete on the basis of ability to be profitable. Mm -hmm. You compete also on the basis of being compliant with the law because if you reduce your reputational risk, if you reduce other areas of risk, your long-term, your longevity within, within, within the industry and your long-term success um, uh, could potentially be um, more, more advantageous than if you take a shortcut. This is all business. This yes. is all business because strategy. What, what so some people will tell you the players, in essence, couldn't care less about the reputation, to a certain extent, as long as they're they're playing. Um, and you spoke about a level playing field. My view. This is my view here. I sometimes think that on a European level, we've actually um, outcompeted ourselves. We've put ourselves at a position which is of weakness. Why? Because at the same time as we are regulating and enforcing a licensing structure and enforcing certain rules, at the same time, due to the nature of the internet, it is so hard to block those operators who, A, couldn't care less about getting a license in that jurisdiction, B, don't pay their taxes over there, and C, offer a product which sometimes looks looks the same, but does not feel and does not behave in the same manner as other products, with a much less RTP, with a much less focus on, on responsible gaming. So again, I repeat, it is important to have a compliance culture, but at what cost? At what cost, Manfred? Oh, yes, there, there are various aspects to this to this argument. So you say that the European companies um, within the EU legal framework have placed themselves in a position where they can't compete with, with, with other jurisdictions that are third, third countries. Yes, possibly. I mean, the question that, that comes to mind is, will consumers vote with their feet? So will they move where they have more protection, where they have more chance of, of being paid the monies if, if, if they're entitled? So I, I think in the gaming industry, we're not there yet. No. I, I agree with you we're 100%. Not, we're not there yet. So if I were investing my money, mm -hmm. I would be very cautious as to where an, uh, an investment firm or a bank 
where I'm placing my deposits is where that entity is licensed, whether I am entitled to a deposit compensation scheme or an investor compensation scheme. In the gaming world, I think these these factors are are alien. Because here we speak about a totally different type of customer and we're speaking about entertainment, not investment. So the priorities of the customer are very different when it comes to uh, what they seek. Mm -hmm. So we cannot and we shouldn't regulate um, uh, the gaming industry in the same way that we regulate the financial services industry, even though a lot of attempts have been made in that regard because the orientation of the customer is different and the elements we need to protect the customer from are different altogether. Okay. You mentioned the banks. And there's something I'd like to now pursue a different part. Um, You mentioned banks. A few years ago, due to certain, let's say, AML issues, the country went down the road of being grey-listed which eventually, however, we got over it very quickly, within a year. I mean, there are other jurisdictions which are taking a bit longer to get out of grey listing compared to us. But we got out of it relatively quickly. So, and we mentioned the banks. Maybe your views here on how we got there and the impact that had on our day-to-day operations. Okay, so... That's a long question. Not a long question. It is a question of uh, it's a span of a few years, right? So, so the issues started before motor was greatlisted in the sense that the difficulty to maintain a bank account for gaming companies and for other um, industries that are seen to pose a higher risk from a money laundering and terrorism financing perspective started before the issue of greylisting. So we're looking at motor right here. So the banks in Malta were facing difficulties in retaining the correspondent banking relationships. This is before grey listing? This is before grey listing. Why I would say that? five, six years before And may I ask why was that? Well, because so for a bank to operate in, with international transactions, mm-hmm. particularly where there are uh, different currencies, you need a correspondent bank. So a bank has a, has, has a bank account with another bank, mm-hmm. right? And these would typically be larger financial institutions, larger banks, mm-hmm. um, so so the, the, the likes of Bank of America, Deutsche Bank, etc. Mm-hmm. That would be the clearinghouse for, for the bank. Now, excuse me, by clearinghouse, what do you so mean? So what we're saying is they clear the transactions, especially okay. when it comes to different currencies. Okay. Right? So f- to, to, to carry out a, um, a US dollar transaction, you need to have a, a bank account with a correspondent bank. Okay. Uh, that can that can clear those type one of, of one of the issues I actually remember I believe was ING the the Dutch bank which was one of which was one of those which pulled out of being a corresponding US bank yes and Deutsche Bank did as well and well ultimately we reached a stage where very few Maltese banks managed to maintain the correspondent okay. relationships why because the difficulty in regulating now f- from a bank perspective mm-hmm. in limiting the exposure from an AML point mm-hmm. of view for the bank 
mm-hmm. um, when dealing with smaller jurisdictions, when dealing with smaller banks in smaller mm-hmm. jurisdictions, meant that they would need a regiment of compliance officers because the correspondent bank doesn't have access to who the customer is. Because the money is coming directly from the bank. Exactly. So the bank correspondent bank's customer is a bank. Okay. Now, to be able to reduce its risk as a correspondent bank, it would need to have a lot of information on the bank's customer, which so, it never has. So basically, the bank has to have source of wealth, source of source exactly. of fund documentation itself. Which becomes impossible. You need a regiment of compliance officers, so it becomes easier and cheaper to stop providing services in certain jurisdictions. Because from a, from a financial perspective, it just doesn't make, sense. doesn't make sense any longer. So Maltese banks were facing that difficulty. So we had a number of banks that were providing services to gaming companies, money service bureaus, um, uh, value transfer businesses, etc., which are deemed to be high risk, right? corporate service providers, etc. And the correspondent banks were saying, okay, you can continue to use my services as a correspondent mm-hmm. bank as long as you don't channel that type of business to me. So the cascading effect was that domestic banks started to close accounts for high-risk entities, and the gaming sector fell within that 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 um, uh, categorization. This was pre-grey listing. Now, when Malta went through the process of of eventually becoming grey listed, so the FATF considering Malta to have gaps in its anti-money laundering mm-hmm. regime that are enough to place it on a list of jurisdictions, 10, 12, 15 jurisdictions worldwide that have you know, significant gaps that need to be rectified. Mm-hmm. So what, what the FATF said ultimately was that the Maltese anti-money laundering regime was not up to scratch okay. and needed to be rectified. And you mentioned the one-year period. Yes. So during that one year, we got Many changes took place. Lots now, of changes. Let's be fair, right. the, the, the actual chapter on gaming did not highlight any or very few issues on remote gaming, if I'm not mistaken, right? Remote gaming was not one of the areas, far from it actually, mm-hmm. that led us to being on, on the grey list, yes. ultimately. But um, that that is also then, a, a, let's say, a, a good certificate for how the gaming sector is regulated on the island. So and I mean, also yeah. the, the positive reputation that operators have. Yeah. But and this, this is what gets to me then in this country, unfortunately. We have a saying in Maltese, and I apologize to our viewers, but I'll, I'll say it, Manfred. It's either raw or overcooked, literal translation. Why were the gaming companies put into the same envelope as other companies when the, when the Moneyval report itself is saying that on an online gaming perspective, we are fine? Why did that happen? That I can't. That I can't understand. And many of an operator I've spoken to have also asked me the same question, as in, in not so colourful language, but they have asked the same question. So the gaming industry itself did not lead Malta to grey listing to being grey listed. But we were victims on then of the. But then everybody was a victim of the grey listing, even the person in the street, so who ultimately to get a bank account. Had to had to I, go I, through I, through many hopes. No, yes, but just, I don't want to. I don't want to, and I don't want to sound rude over here. But these were commercial companies, which are employing a lot of people on the island, are providing a lot of value added to the to the, to the island, and yet they were still treated in this manner. 
That, that I could never understand. I couldn't understand what the fixation was with gaming companies, especially when the gaming companies themselves were not at fault for the reality that the country was facing at the time. So it was a, it was a bit of a weird situation. And in fact, um, uh, we, we have a, had a podcast with um, Nikolai Livori and we also discussed this matter. It, it seemed like a, almost an unjust targeting to a certain extent. I wouldn't call it unjust targeting. I would call it collateral damage. So there was you sound, an impact. You're sounding like a politician now. No, but <laughs> <laughs> friend, far, far from it. No. And usually the roles are reversed no. over. Absolutely. <laughs> no, ultimately, it was not the gaming industry that led, that led Malta to Greylist. I think it was our weaknesses in our infrastructure as a jurisdiction to combat money laundering. Yes. So the country did not invest over a long period of time in building the the regulatory bodies in investing in its regulatory bodies. So it was building a financial services sector that grew mm-hmm. exponentially over time and the gaming industry that grew exponentially over time and the corporate services industry that grew and we were even selling passports as in as in having um, investment, uh, citizenship by investment. So we were targeting various areas for, for, fi- for financial growth and economic mm-hmm. growth. But the protective mechanisms to ensure that these various sectors were not abused of did not grow to the same extent, right? So our courts never, if at all, prosecuted for money laundering purposes, pre-grey listing, right? Our courts were really equipped, our prosecutors were not equipped, our police force was not equipped, our FIU was under-resourced. The MGA and the MFSA didn't look at financial crime aspect. They focused on regulatory and compliance aspects. So there were big weaknesses I, in the system. I agree with you there. And that's what led us to grey yes. listing. That is what led us to grey listing. So how we dealt with beneficial ownership mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. Ta- the registry, which took us so long to implement. Yes, but in actual fact, there were countries that were worse off than us from a beneficial owner registry perspective. You don't have it in the US, you don't have it in Canada yet. yet. And yet Malta had it and still got grey listed because the beneficial owner information. There, there actually was an, an interesting, if I'm not mistaken, yesterday, there was an interesting news item. So for the benefit again of the viewers, we record these podcasts before. So when I say yesterday, I'm actually referring to the 11th of September. But there was an interesting um, decision in the UK where the UKGC were asked to reveal the persons behind the trust and, and the UKGC had that information but they said no we have no obligation to reveal the persons behind the trust whereas nowadays in Malta with the registry I believe that such an information would be available to a regulatory authority right beneficial information would be available to a regulatory authority not to the public in general to well I mean we can go into the intricacies of this in truth anybody carrying out customer due diligence has access to There was a decision in November uh, 2022 that then limited public access to beneficial owner information in in the EU that has led now to restricting public access. But until November 2022, there was actually full public public access. I know we moved on to something. No, I don't. This is is the beauty of these podcasts. We we start with a plan, but we end up with a completely different reality but it's 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 nice um, I know the viewers are enjoying it because we can see from the viewership of the videos that the numbers are picking up and if I may 
I'd just like to encourage you to please like and subscribe to Sigma More, to Sigma World, the challenge, uh, the channel on YouTube, so that we can be in a position to continue to grow our audience. Getting back <laughs> to the scheduled program. <laughs> two points before, because we have very, very little time, but there are two points which, which I'd like to make and discuss with you. Number one, post-gray listing. How has Malta adapted to this new reality? How have you seen the evolution now on a compliance, on an AML perspective, in the reality that is Malta today? When a country goes through such a process, what you need to do is convince the international bodies that you take this area seriously, mm -hmm. that your regulatory bodies, your obliged entities, the various industries that fall within the definition mm -hmm. of obliged entities or subject persons, um, the, the the police, the courts, you know, are, are are raising the standards to meet the FATF recommendations, which are the international standards mm -hmm. over here. And we managed in a record period of time to convince the international bodies that there is high level political commitment mm -hmm. to, to to do this, and we have met those standards at least to. The, the, the entry level requirement so that we can continue to, to evolve, which has meant that there was a bit of a shock to the system in that um, where there was a low level of supervision, suddenly supervision increased dramatically, where there was very little penalties being imposed mm -hmm. by regula regulatory authorities. Suddenly, authorities were not just subject to on-site examinations and inspections. They were even subject to hefty administrative penalties. So th there was a tightening of regulation. Mm -hmm. There was a stricter application of the law. And I would say it was a shock to the system in areas where there was lighter touch mm -hmm. regulation. Um, not necessarily because it was a political decision to have a lighter touch mm -hmm. regulation, but potentially because the the, the, the regulator was under-resourced. Um, and, and as we said earlier, there was, there was not enough investment in, mm -hmm. these, in these regulatory spaces. So as a, from a supervisory perspective, um, so operators, if we look at the, uh, at, the, at, the, at the gaming industry from 1st January 2018, in Malta, they had to come up to speed with uh, 25 years of regulation in other sectors. Mm -hmm. So they had to not only ask invasive questions to their players um, to see where they're getting their money from to be able to gamble, but they had to actually get documentary evidence in, yes. in, in, in higher risk situations to prove that the source of funds was legitimate. Mm -hmm. This was unheard of in the in the industry. So so people would just log on, uh, get on to yeah. the, uh, and play. And, 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 and obviously there are other considerations from a responsible gaming point of view and addiction and all of that. But from, from a source of funds perspective, no, people didn't need to yeah. justify their wealth. And this was one of the big changes. Yes. And, and ultimately, I spoke about a level playing field. I mean, if, if there isn't a level playing field here, if I'm asking you for three documents and my competitor is not asking you for any documents, people will just minimize the page and go into somebody else's casino. So the question was, is there going to be a race to the top or a race to the bottom? And the race to the bottom. 
And I come to my last question and we need <laughs> to be concise. Already. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's 30 minutes and yeah. FIU and Malta is issuing fines. Yes. Those fines didn't get challenged in the constitutional court and those fines are non-enforceable. Not exactly, but l- let's say... I'm making it simple for our okay. viewers. Let's not go into legal jargon. No, no, I'm at not going of, to go into legal At the end of the day, of do the operators end up paying those fines? Well, there are two aspects, right? So there's the appeal mm-hmm. that has always been there. And a number of operators that have been subjected to a fine have appealed and have had the fine reduced on appeal. Mm-hmm. So the first issue over here is that our courts is uh, principally, let's say principally, disagreeing with the quantum of the fines imposed by the FIU. Okay. So they are agreeing with the FIU on the merits, mm-hmm. but they are saying that the fines that are being imposed are too high. Are too high, And they have, I would say, in a large percentage of the cases that were before bought, brought before the, 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 the mm-hmm. appellate courts reduced the, the fine. There was an article in moneylaundering.com a year ago that said 80% of A the reduction fine. of 80%. More or less, yes. And then that remaining 20% gets quashed in the, in the constitutional you, court? No, now, then the constitutional court, we have had four cases, right, between March and June this year. It's one a month. Yes, but they were being decided. <laughs> they were decided in that period, and there are a number that are still pending. Yes, and here we've had consistent judgments in all four of them, but they're all subject to appeal. So the FIA has appealed all these four constitutional cases because they're the first whole civil court okay. in, its, in its constitutional jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So still subject so to an appeal. But here, what the court said is that the FIU's. Um, Jurisdiction. So, well, it's a bit more complicated, but in very simple terms, the 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 the, the court has said that the FIU cannot be the entity that carries out an investigation and also meets out the penalty. Yeah. Right. So, ultimately, you have a situation where the FIU decides who is going to be subject to an on-site examination, carries it out. Um, it's basically judge and jury at the same time. So that has been considered to be a breach of our constitution, a breach of the European Convention of Human Rights, because of the lack of impartiality, according to our courts, of the, the, the administrative body. But it's subject to appeal. It's subject to appeal. So Manfred, we have no conclusion today was on that. A, today yet. was really interesting. I've really enjoyed having this, this conversation with you. Same here. And um, I can assure the viewers that once these decisions go up to appeal, from the Constitutional Court, we'll have a follow-up discussion with Manfred. Thank you so much, Moshe. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It was great to be here.